We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're closing this chapter off today. And we almost did it last week, but we, I ran out of time. So we uh, got down to verse 18, and uh, we won't read the whole text this morning. So you can just remain uh, uh, seated. But we've been talking about Paul when he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, and what that mystery is. And the mystery is basically we shall not all sleep, we shall not all die before the Lord's return. And we've looked at so far in this chapter, we've looked at the reception of the gospel, the reasons why it's important, the results of his resurrection, the reality of our resurrection. And now we're in a section that I've entitled the rewards that will come. And this is verses 50 to 58. And uh, so far we've talked about the conditions for experiencing these rewards. And we saw that in verse, uh, verse 50, the very, very beginning of this this section of scripture and he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable and so what is he saying something has to happen something has to change and um, you have to come to Christ uh, if you're ever going to be in that um, glorified state in the Lord's presence and then we talked about the change that we will experience in verses 51 and 52 and uh, it's a change of form or nature for something better. And we went over to First Thessalonians last week, verse, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, and looked at uh, what we know as the, the, the rapture of the church. And we talked about that extensively, and the moment when it will happen, the message that will be sounded. And then thirdly, we looked at the conquering of death. And this was kind of an exciting part here where he reads, uh, we just read it, O death, uh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we talked about that and the idea that, you know what? Um, it happened, and, and it's a prophecy that will be uh, fulfilled. And one day we will, be, we will all die, but one day we will be risen victorious over sin and death if we've trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we saw the picture of this total victory. We said that the sin, it's sin that brings death from the very beginning. We looked at various verses about that. And it's the law that reveals um, the power of sin. So the law doesn't save us, but it reveals how sinful we are. And that's why it's so important when you share your faith with someone, when you're evangelizing, that you always are quick to share with people the law. So they come to understand their need of a Savior. If the law is not shared with them, if you're just out there sharing a message of happy, happy in Jesus, just trust Jesus, well, most people say, why? <laughs> why do I need to trust Jesus? And it's only when you point out to them, wait a minute, you're, you're a sinner just like everybody else, and you need grace in your life, and you need forgiveness from your sin. And there's not a person here this morning that could say, oh, no, I've never done anything wrong. I'm completely perfect. And if you did raise your hand, you'd be lying. In church, so that, go figure. But one day we'll be victorious over sin and death, it says. And it's Christ that gives us that victory. We looked at that. And he submitted himself for us to death on a cross. And he satisfied all the righteous demands of the Father and the law. And it was amazing when that happened, how Christ rose on the third day victorious over sin and death. And it's only Christ alone that can do that. 
There's no other one else that you can trust in for the salvation of your soul. Or if you are trusting in anything else other than the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, your soul will be damned to hell forever. And that's not something that you'd want to entertain. So God has made you aware, even this morning, that, hey, you need to look to the cross. You need to look to Christ. Look to Jesus for the salvation of your soul, and he will save you. The Bible is very clear about that. Well, that's as far as we got last week, and so we, we're going to pick up right there in verse 58, and he, Paul writes there, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And he points out here, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to the believers there in Corinth. And that word, therefore, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you always need to look and see why it is there for. And that is so important. And here, what's interesting, it's fascinating to me that Paul has just given us 57 verses of doctrinal truth, of doctrinal teaching. From, from verse 1 all the way down to verse 57. It's all doctrine, basically. And then he sums up this, this, this chapter with what? One, one verse of application. He says, basically, because of everything I just taught you, therefore. Or you could say, so that. And a lot of people say, well, you know, pastor, you teach too much doctrine. You need more application. I, I beg to disagree. Because if you know the doctrine, that's up to you to apply it. You know, we can talk about application all day long. But if you got your doctrine wrong, then your application is going to be wrong too. So doctrine is very, very important. And it's, it's, it's the basis, it's the foundation of everything that we learn. And, uh, you know, this, a lot of churches today are focused on more on application, application, application. And they don't teach any doctrine at all. And the reason why they don't, and I'll just be real frank with you, is because doctrine, when you teach doctrine, usually it divides because not everybody agrees. And so a lot of churches will choose to say, well, you know, we're not going to teach on the gifts. We're not going to teach on this. We're not going to teach on that because if we do, we could lose half our church. And so they don't have anything really they're standing on as far as biblical doctrine or truth. They're kind of making everything vanilla so everybody's happy in the pews and everybody comes back next week. Well, it's far more important that we learn truth. And Jesus himself taught that truth doesn't always unite. It divides, even family member against family member sometimes. And so we're thankful that we're in a church that is supportive of teaching biblical truth. And you've been very patient as we go through books of the Bible, book after book, and and. Um, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see your appetite grow for the Word of God. And by the way, Ken and I just want to thank you for your generous recognition last week on Pastor's Appreciation Day there. That was just a real uh, blessing. And, um, you know, we, we both serve uh, because we're called to do this. And uh, we don't do it for the pat on the head. But when the pat on the head comes, it's kind of nice. <laughs> so we want to thank you. Uh, for being a faithful congregation that loves God's word and loves those who serve him. But when we come to this word, therefore, it's an, it's an adverb that is used as a conjunction. So you, like I said, you could probably say, so that. And uh, it's used as a conjunction before a clause that expresses the result or consequence 
of the immediate context that precedes it. So what Paul is saying is, I taught you all this stuff, it's true. What did he, what did he teach us here? He was teaching about the resurrection, right? Not necessarily the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection that the Corinthians, who have trusted in Christ, will one day experience bodily, in bodily form. They will be raised from the dead. Their physical body will be raised from the dead, and they will have a brand new body. And we have hope beyond the grave. And that's what we've been looking at. And so what Paul is saying is because of that, because you know you're going to be changed, you know you're going to go from uh, mortality to immortality, to the perishable to the imperishable. Because you know that, what are the results? How does that flesh out in your life? And they should be evident in every believer's life. That's the first point there. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, I love that, beloved brothers, right? Sometimes those of you who have been in any church for any amount of time, sometimes the brothers and sisters are not so loving. We've all been hurt, right? We've all been hurt by somebody in the church. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a pastor to understand that. Everybody in this room has probably been hurt or offended at some point. But you know what? When, when, you, when you think everybody else is against you, and you've you got to remember that, you know what? God looks at you as beloved. He loves you beyond our wildest imagination, so much that he gave his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place and to pay the sacrifice for our sin and has provided a pathway for us to be, uh, have reconciliation to God, our Father and Creator. And what a wonderful gospel truth that is. But here... Paul is saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, because they were one with him in Christ. And this is a, this is a, a full and loving appeal that really asks us to do uh, or to, to understand two things. It's not really commanding us to do anything. We, we look at it that way, but we're going to understand something different when we look into this. But what it means is here he uses the word steadfast and immovable. And those are, those are two words that are... Um, pretty committed words. You don't really even have to define them. Define them if somebody's steadfast and somebody's immovable. You kind of understand what that means. They're not, they're not budging, okay? That's what that means. They're taking a stand uh, for something. And these are the results that will happen to somebody who really believes one day that their body will be changed. One day that when we die, we have hope beyond the grave, that gives you the motivation to be steadfast and immovable in your faith. Now, he's not asking us to do these things. He's not saying that. He says, these are the results for those who are trusting in Christ, who have hope beyond the grave. He's saying, these are the evidences, you might say, the results of somebody who really, truly believes that they will one day have a brand new body, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, and that there is hope beyond the grave. That changes your perspective. This ought to be true of every single person here this morning. You know, sometimes I, I used to use this illustration when Mike Tyson was really popular in boxing. I said, you know what? Who would want to go up against Mike Tyson? Nobody, right? I mean, no, nobody here would. But you know what? If, if somehow God could communicate to you, you know what, Steve? If you go in the round with Mike Tyson... I want you to last three rounds because on the fourth round, when you get out of your stool and you go, you're going to actually knock this guy out. If God told me that, 
Mike Tyson might beat the snot out of me for three rounds. I might not want to get up. I'd be a bloodied mess, no doubt. But if I was taking God's word to be true, and I knew when that bell rang, when, when that fourth round began, and I walked out there, somehow God was going to promise to do, he was going to do what he promised, and I was going to land a punch on Mike Tyson and knock out the reigning world champion. I mean, do you think I would want to have a little motivation to last three rounds? I think I would. And see, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you know what, I'm not telling you to, to dig your feet in and be steadfast and be immovable. He's saying this is the result of someone who believes that God will change you, that one day he is coming back and that there's hope beyond the grave. And there's three, three of them here, three basic results that he points out. The first one is contentment. I put down emotional contentment. That word steadfast is the, is the first one he says. Be steadfast. You know, we, we think of the idea of being steadfast, of digging our feet in and, you know, really resisting something. That's not the idea here. That's not really what this means. Um, it has, you know, the idea here of steadfast, it refers to a seat or a chair. Um, I remember before when I used to lead worship from the keyboards up here, I would be standing for all of the music, and then I'd walk over here and I would preach. And it dawned on me one day, wow, I'm standing for like two and a half hours straight. <laughs> you know, no wonder I'm so tired after the service. You know, you guys get to sit down. But, you know, so then I moved over to the piano. It's a little nicer. You know, I get to sit down, you get to stand up. You know, so it's a, a trade-off, okay? But this is the idea here. It's like, okay, you know, when, the, when we're singing a bunch of songs and some of you are thinking, how oh, so sweet to be able to sit down, you know, and we're not legalistic about that. So if you want to sit down, go ahead. But we think you sing better standing up. That's why we have you stand and, and it's just an honorable thing to do. But, you know, if you're older and you have leg problems, sit down. It's, nobody's going to point their finger at you. But at the same time, the, the, the flavor of the word here is like after we've been singing five or six or seven hymns, and I say, you may be seated. I can see it on your faces. Some of you are like, ah, oh, fine. And you sit down, and you got this big grin on your face. You're just, you're, just, you're just comfy in your nice little cushioned chairs. Why? Because you've been standing for a long time. See, this is what he's really getting at. He's kind of like that, that emotion of, ah. It's, it's, it's an adjective. It means to be sitting down. It has the idea of being settled, of, of being seated, being fixed, firm, solid, you might say. One commentator said, settle, settle down, get a hold of your emotions, be settled. One day you're going to rise from the dead. Because I don't know about you, but we live in a world that is completely unsettled. Would you agree? I mean, every day people are freaking out over things they see on the news and, and all kinds of things. And we have to be careful. We have to filter that and realize, hey, wait a minute. One day Christ is coming back and I'm out of here. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And I want to take as many people to heaven with me as I can. So I want to be busy about the, words, the Lord's work, sharing his word with people. But you know what? When he comes back, all this stuff is not going to matter. And so what is he doing here? He's exhorting us to firm up our, our convictions. He's like, don't, don't be wavering, Corinthians, on this issue. Don't be vacillating on the idea that Christ one day is coming back and your physical body, the body that's filled with pain and, and racked with disease and sinfulness, one day it's going to be transformed and you're going to be risen from the dead and rejoined with your soul. 
And he wants them to be solid, steadfast. It's kind of like he's saying, don't be moved around by your emotions. Don't be volatile in your fears and your doubts. Don't be erratic. Don't be, you know, all over the place, a scatterbrain. Don't be easily discouraged. He's saying, my beloved brothers and sisters in Corinth, one day you will rise from the dead. That's the promise of God. He wants them to understand that. And if you really, really believe that one day all of this will change, we'll have no more pain, we'll have no more suffering, we'll be no more crying, we're going to have a brand new body where we live forever in the presence of the Lord, where we live with the loved ones that we know that knew the Lord that went on before. We will know them in heaven. We will recognize them. If you believe all this, what Paul is saying is just take a deep breath and sit down and be quiet. Relax. Have some emotional contentment. We think of being steadfast as digging our heels in and standing our ground. That's not what the idea here is. It's sitting down and relaxing. He's coming back and it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Amen? All the pain and suffering and everything we're dealing with now, it's going to be gone in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says. The Bible says the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with what's coming down the road for us that know Christ. So if you got an evidence in your life, it will be emotional contentment if you believe that Christ is returning for you. That should encourage our hearts. It doesn't mean we don't cry. It doesn't mean that we don't have any emotions here. It doesn't mean we don't miss our loved ones who've gone on before us to be with the Lord. It doesn't mean that we still don't hurt if we're given a, uh, you know, a, a terminal illness or something like that. I mean, that's bothersome. But you know what? Through it all, inside, inside of us, somehow God puts an emotional peace, a contentment. And we know that, you know what? Wow, this is, this is not reality here. <laughs> this is just a temporary little blip on the screen, a vapor, as James described it, that's here today and gone tomorrow. And so he says, be steadfast. Have a seat. Relax. It's all taken care of. It's all taken care of. Secondly, not only do we have an emotional contentment, it's one of the results, but secondly, there's a biblical conviction, and that's the word immovable here. The Greek word here basically means that which will not move away. Um, and what he's saying, if you really believe what a, he's been teaching us in verses 1 to 57 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, there's emotional contentment. But secondly, there's biblical conviction. There's biblical conviction. The Bible has a lot to say about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes this. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that, you know what, this is not a time to go back and forth. You know, it's not a time to put one toe in, one toe out. We cannot live that way in this world today as a Christian. You, you'll go nuts. You know, unless that 
inner faith tells you, hey, you know what? The Lord's got everything under control. He's sovereign. He's coming back for you. You'll have a new body. Everything is going to change. Wow. So that's why we can stand firm and hold fast to the tradition that was taught to us. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul put down a pattern for Timothy to follow. And he says, don't deviate from it. These were inspired words. These are the word of God. Or in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of uh, those who serve the Lord, it says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, today is the day when Christians need to roll their sleeves up and say, yeah, you know what? I understand when I say Jesus is the only way to salvation, that may offend you. I'm sorry. But I'm not going to not tell you that because that's the truth. I'd rather risk offending you than seeing your soul in hell one day. And see, Christians have been shamed into silence, unfortunately, in this politically correct world we live in. And as the worse it gets, it's, it, the only benefit is really some of the Christians are speaking up. And there's some people that don't really care whether they're politically correct or not. Even those, by the way, <laughs> I was watching a uh, program the other day, and it had a, a CEO of one of the major companies here in, in the Valley, and there's several of them, basically. I, I don't know if they're believers or not, but they're definitely not politically correct, and they're conservative. And they speak their mind. They don't care. And, and that speaks volumes, okay? In other words, what Paul is saying is these, don't be easily swayed. Don't be pushed around. Your hope is in the Lord, and you know what the Bible says. Therefore, there's a conviction in us in that. About everything. He says, don't be easily persuaded off that conviction. When everybody else is selling you something different, but you know what the word of God says, and you know it to be true, and you understand the doctrines that it possesses, you stand your ground. That's what Paul is telling us. It's a very interesting word, this word immovable it's a compound word in the English as it is in the Greek original, but it, it comes from a certain verb which means to set something in motion or to shift. Uh, there's an English word that comes from it, and that's the word cinema. Cinema. It's the derivative of the original language. There's a, a German word for a motion picture. Um, and it, it, it's, it's tied to that word. Uh, they're moving. They're moving parts here. And when something is in motion, it's a cinema. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, stop it. Stop moving. Stop the movie. Don't be in motion doctrinally. 
Don't be putting your finger in the air. Well, who am I with today? Let's see. I'm with charismatics today, so I guess this is what I got. I'm just going to go along with them. Oh, over here, I'm with these people, and they believe that. Well, I'm, I'm going to believe with them because I don't want to be caused, caused for division in the body of Christ. So I'm just going to go along with anybody. I'm just going to flow, go with the flow doctrinally. No, Paul says doctrine is very important. You need to be settled. You need to be steadfast. You need to be firm. You need to be immovable in your doctrine. That's why you have to know what doctrine is. If you don't understand what the doctrine is, if you don't understand the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of God or the doctrine of sin or angels or any of these things, you're not going to know where to stand. And a lot of times it's, it's, it's funny because sometimes people will come up and they'll say, Pastor, I have a question. And, and they'll ask a question. And it's not really related to any verse, but usually it's something that, um, you know, it can be any kind of question. But sometimes I, I just kind of chuckle inside because I'm like, well, no, the, the answer is no. <laughs> and they'll say, well, no, but some people teach. I, say, I don't care what some people teach. <laughs> Here's where it says in the Bible this, you know. Sometimes people say, well, don't you think, you know, you know, you can do good works and God will somehow look favorably on you if you do that? I mean, are you, if you really believe that all that doesn't matter? And I'll say, well, if you're asking me, are you saved by your good works? I'll say no. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And you point it out and they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, there's another verse. <laughs> Stop. You're confusing the issue here. You know, God doesn't contradict himself. So if this verse says this, and we understand it perfectly, that you're saved by faith, by grace through faith, and not of yourselves, it's not of works, lest any man should boast, how much clearer can you get, right? And then they'll say, well, do you think that uh, I have to um, be baptized to be saved? No. No. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. Water baptism. Well, why do you say that? Doesn't that mean, isn't baptism related to salvation? No. Baptism, water baptism, believer's baptism, is just a, it's a sign to everybody else that you've been committed to Christ, that your, your heart has changed and you've committed your life to Christ and therefore you're willing to follow him through the waters of baptism. That's why Christ got baptized. Think of it this way. If baptism was required for salvation... Who in the New Testament got baptized as an example for us? Who? Christ. Did, did he need to be saved? No. No. He had no sin. So it's, it's a good, it's just an example. But when you understand what the word of God says, then you can clearly answer those questions very, with authority. You can say no. The answer is no. I don't care what your friends say. I don't care what your other pastor says. I don't care what your church believes. I don't care what your denomination believes. The word of God says this. And God doesn't stutter on some of these things. He's very clear. And so we have to stop and we have to be immovable. Don't be moving. Be settled down in what you believe. And there's a lot of people that are experiencing a lot of opposition and even persecution in the world today because they're just that. They're immovable. A lot of Islamic countries are saying, well, you need to you know, change your belief and we'll let you live. And these dear Christians are saying, no, I'm not going to deny Christ. You don't understand. We're going to put you in a cage and drown you or we're going to put you in a cage and set you on fire. That's so what? Go ahead. 
Absent from the body, be present with the Lord. Yeah, I might have to deal with a little bit of pain for a couple minutes, but I'm out of here. See, unbelievers don't understand that kind of, of, of faith. But that's the faith that we have is in Christ, is it not? Even though we have opposition and persecution, Paul reminded them that in such situations, what are we supposed to do? We're to turn back to what we've been taught. See, that's why it's so important in the local church that people understand. When you come here on a Sunday morning, I hope you're not just checking the box. I hope this isn't just a work for you. Sunday, you know, I've always gone to church, so I just come to church. Check. See you next week, Pastor. I hope there's something in your, your heart Sunday morning when you wake up. Okay, what's he going to teach today? Wait, we're in Corinthians. This is, I've read this verse all week. I wonder, wonder what it, I hope he's going to shed light on this. I hope you come with some excitement in your heart. You don't just drag yourself through the door going, okay, let's get through this thing. And, you know, 49ers, what time do they play? <laughs> there should be an excitement as we gather together as the body of Christ. Why? First of all, we're being obedient to what God calls us to do. We're fellowshipping together as the body of Christ. That's why early on, when we had to close our doors and nobody really knew what the virus was after a couple of weeks, Ken and I realized, wait a minute, this, something's not right about this. We're just going to meet. Not really going to advertise it, but we're going to meet. <laughs> we still did the live stream and all that stuff, but we felt it was very important that the body of Christ gather together. Why? Because that's what we're, we're called to do. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, yeah, just, you know, get in your bathrobe and get your latte and turn on the, the, the TV and watch your pastor on TV. It doesn't say that. It says they gathered together sometimes daily. And as, as believers, you know, if we make it out on Sunday, we pat ourselves on the back. We give, our, we give ourselves a big crown if we come out actually on Wednesday night to the Bible study. Oh, my goodness, that's twice one week, Pastor. Do you understand I gave you three hours this week, Lord? It's sad. It should be the first thing on our, our list. It should be something that we're looking forward to. We get to come together as a body of Christ and fellowship around his personal word of God that he gave us. Knowing that that will help us grow and being edified so that we can understand doctrinal, doctrinal truth even further and, and more fully so that we can even be more immovable in our faith. I mean, as Christians today in the Western world, we have really an embarrassment, I would say, of riches when it comes to the availability of Christian teaching. I mean, you have it on your iPad, you have it on the computer, you have it on your phone, you have it on TV, you have it on the radio, whether they're written sources, whether it's the radio, whether it's online, even in person. I mean, if you wanted to, you could, you could listen to sermons 24-7, in person, online, whatever, for weeks on end and never run out of material. That's how much access we have to stuff. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of us don't appreciate what we have. We don't appreciate it. And so we don't dedicate ourselves to the teachings that we have. We just kind of check in. It's kind of like the athlete who practices over and over and over. See, as believers, we have to be dedicated to the word of God so that we put it into practice 
in the game of life. Whenever we're given the opportunity. Ask yourself the question, are you holding fast to the teachings that you're, you're experiencing, that you're learning from God's word? There's emotional contentment. There's biblical conviction. And number three, lastly, there's a, there's a personal commitment here that Paul points out. Look at what he says. He says, always abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. The original language here is just amazing because it's, it's kind of like to be super abounding. This means to in excess, exceeding excess in the number or, or measure. And this is one of the evidence of those who, who trust that Christ will return and, and exchange this decrepit body for a glorified body. He'll remake us. He's saying, you know what? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's one of the evidences. What's that mean? This means you never quit. You don't give up. I mean, I've known a lot of believers, even from college days, and, and some of these gentlemen were very, very gifted. I remember I was a brand new Christian when I went to Christian college, and, and some of them, you know, were raised in a Christian home, and they went specifically to college to become a pastor, and so, you know, they would be the guys that spoke in chapel, you know, they're polished, good-looking. And I'd just sit there going, man, I don't even know if I could ever do that. And it's sad because over the years you're thinking, wow, they're just going to be so, they're going to make a church after mega. They're just going to be really successful in ministry. And then you get in touch with them 10, 15 years later. What are you doing? I'm selling insurance. What? What happened? Well, I had a moral failure. I had this. I had that. Some of them say, yeah, it's just not, not, my, not my thing anymore. I thought, wow. It's amazing. They cop out, they drop out, they bomb out, whatever it might be. But the fact is God's, one of the evidences of those who really believe that, that they're, they're part of this resurrection deal, that one day we're going to be resurrected, that they're always abounding. They're super abounding. It literally means to be in excess, exceeding in number or measure. You never quit. You just keep doing it. I don't know if you know who Billy Sunday is. He's a great evangelist back in the day, the 1800s. But he, uh, he really, through his preaching, turned America upside down the turn of the century. And he was actually a professional baseball player. He played for the Chicago White Stockings, they called him, <laughs> and the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, <laughs> and the Philadelphia Phillies. And he's very good. Um, he was born into poverty in Iowa and came from a rough background. He's a short, short little guy, but he's really fast. <laughs> and he was raised kind of after some years in a, they called it the Iowa Soldiers Orphans Home. And uh, he worked a lot of odd jobs, and eventually he found his niche playing baseball. He was really good. And his speed and his size and his agility provided him the opportunity to play professional baseball in the major leagues for eight years. And he was an average hitter, but he was a really good uh, fielder, and he was known for his base running because he was really, really fast. <laughs> and he came to Christ in the 1880s. And after he came to Christ, he left baseball. He just walked away. He said, this is what I want to do anymore. I don't want to do this. I want to preach the word of God. Never went to school. But he had kind of a personality that people were just drawn to. 
And so he started learning. And basically on a Sunday afternoon in Chicago, it was either 1887 or, or, or uh, 86 or 87, several of his baseball teammates, uh, after one of the games, they went out into the town. And it was kind of their day off after that. And so they went out. And on one of the corners... They stopped to listen to a gospel preaching team from the Pacific Garden Mission. And they were attracted to the music. They were playing the hymns. And Billy Sunday had heard his mother sing a hymn. And they were singing this hymn. And so he began to, he paused there and he began to listen. And eventually the Lord drew him back there. And he began to go to these services at the Pacific Garden Mission. And after talking with one of the leaders there, after some struggle on his part, he came to Christ. He committed his life to Christ, and he became a Christian. And he began attending um, Jefferson Park Presbyterian Church. And it was handy to the ballpark. It made it easy for him to, to get there and everything. And so um, he, he socialized with his teammates still, uh, but he sometimes gambled, but he never really drank heavily. He wasn't you know, really into all that. And following his conversion, he, he denounced drinking, swearing, gambling, changed his behavior, and he was recognized by both uh, teammates uh, uh, and, and fans as, well, something happened to this guy. Something changed. And he began speaking in churches and uh, in YMCAs. Back then, that's what they would do. They would gather people together for like sports things, and they would have actually a Christian message, far cry from what it is today. But uh, Billy Sunday was a very um, dynamic personality. I mean, if he was in the room, you knew it. He was short, but he was just very vocal about things. He didn't, he was just all in. And he had a wife, he was a little short guy, but he had a wife that was probably three times his size. She was huge. Big, a big woman. And they called her Maul Sunday. Maul Sunday, that's what they called her. And sometimes Billy Sunday would get so hyped up when he was preaching he would literally jump on top of a pulpit like this. I mean, he'd literally physically get up and just, you know, and people were just like, whoa, what's this guy doing, you know? And some of it was theatrics, but most of it was just raw passion. And there's, you know, I, I'm not going to do that, obviously, but, you know, he did. And sometimes he would get so far just emotionally involved in his message, his wife would get up from the front row and come up and she'd grab him, Billy, get down. And she'd pull him down. Or if he was gone too long, she'd come up. She goes, Billy, they've heard enough. It's time to go home. And she'd drag him out of the service. He just wasn't going to quit. And he made a comment one day. Somebody asked him. They said, you know, when he was getting older and he kind of lost a lot of his popularity after, after all that, his popularity waned after World War I. But they asked him, they said, what are you going to do? You know, we notice you're, you're losing your teeth. And he was. He was losing a lot of teeth. He's getting older. And... Uh, how are you going to preach with no teeth? And he goes, I'll gum it to death. I don't care, you know. And he, he would not quit. And uh, his health declined. And eventually, um, you know, he, he ended up kind of shutting down some of his revivals and things. And they became smaller and smaller. But he didn't stop. Even though his venues waned, he, he continued to do uh, what the Lord had called him to do. And it was kind of tragic later in his life. Um, several of his sons and his, his family had major issues. Uh, they had a daughter who uh, um, died uh, of multiple sclerosis, and, and their oldest son uh, 
after his parents, he messed up financially big time in his life and his parents bailed him out and he ended up committing suicide. I mean, he had a lot of heartache. And even though his crowds declined uh, during the last 15 years of his life, uh, Sunday, Billy Sunday continued accepting preaching invitations and speaking with great effect to the hearts and lives of people. And early in 1935, he had a heart attack, even though it was a mild heart attack. And his doctor said, you know, you need to stop this. You're going to kill yourself. Um, and Sunday ignored their advice. He said, I don't care. And he actually died on November 6th, a week after preaching his last sermon. The title of the sermon was, What Must I Do to Be Saved? And on his gravestone, is, he has 2 Timothy 4.7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. See, this is what God expects of us. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. I mean, it's hard sometimes. Because when you get involved in churches and things like that, um, you know, sometimes you get hurt. And sometimes it's, it's difficult. And sometimes you get criticized and you just want to throw your hands up and quit. But then something tells you, no, I don't care what people think. I'm going to continue to do what the Lord has called me to do. I'm going to continue to preach the gospel. I'm going to continue to live for Christ, even though it's not popular. It's not, not something that, that people look at as acceptable even today in our society. But we're just going to keep on going. See, one of the evidences of, of somebody who knows the victory we have in Christ, that all that doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You continue to abound in the work of the Lord. Those are the results. Well, what are the reasons? He says, knowing that in the Lord, what? Your labor, your hard work, that's the idea, is not in vain. That, that word labor means to the point of exhaustion. To the point of exhaustion. I mean, you ever, you ever get tired of serving the Lord? I'll be honest with you, I do. I do. I mean, especially here in the Bay Area. You know, you, you try to be faithful to the word of God, or whatever, and you think, wow, okay, just wish the church would grow a little more, <laughs> you know. And it's very easy to get your eyes focused on the wrong thing. And then God kind of slaps you upside the head and says, that's not your problem, that's my problem. It's not your church, it's my church. And, and my son said he will build his church. So don't be focused on that. So then you walk away and you go, wait a minute, no, the labor's not in vain. And it's okay to exhaust yourself in the work of the Lord. Um, a couple of years ago, um, some of the leadership here said, you know, I think you need to take a sabbatical. I'm like, okay. I kind of know what a sabbatical is. I never understood it, frankly. And I said, Why? Is there something wrong? Am I like rambling in my messages? Is it, no, no, no. But you just, you know, you're going to burn yourself out. And I said, I don't know what I would do on a sabbatical. I mean, really? I mean, what? You know, I, I feel like God has called me here to teach the word of God. And if I'm not here, then I'm not fulfilling that calling on my life. And it's, it's you know, I mean, you have to take care of yourself and everything. But at the same time, you know, it, it's such a blessing to, to work alongside of somebody like Ken, who has the same kind of mentality as me. 
we're just going to keep on plugging along. You know, if there's five people here, there's five people here. We really don't care. We're going to continue to teach the truth. We're going to continue to minister God's word the best way we can. And let the chips fall where they may. Because we're not answering to you. We're answering to God. And you know what? You're not answering to us. You're answering to God. And so it's very important that we keep that in perspective. And so why do we want to continue to abound in the work of the Lord to the point of exhaustion? Because he will reward us one day. He will reward every last thing that we've done. Jesus even says, every cup of cold water (laughs) that you give in my name, I recognize that. Every little smile, every little word of encouragement that you give to somebody, God is not, yep, that's good, good, that's good. He's keeping track. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says this, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Verse 11, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's the reason we keep on keeping on because we're doing it for God. We're doing it for the Lord. And that's why all of us should live the Christian lives that we live. I get it. Sometimes it it wears you out. Sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it feels like, God, are you even there? That doesn't change the truth that he is. (laughs) Just because you feel a certain way. You know, we have to keep on going on. So we have emotional contentment, biblical conviction, and personal commitment. I just want to encourage you, keep, keep on going. Don't quit. Because God is going to reward you one day. Your labor is never in vain. It doesn't matter if somebody pats you on the head or pats you on the back or not. Who cares? God sees your heart. And if you're doing it just so somebody can pat you on the head or pat you on the back, God's not recognizing that. You do it as what? On to the Lord. That's what we're called to do. I mean, wonder, what a wonderful God we have that he, he saw fit to en- enlist us in his army of servants. You know, I used to get discouraged as a pastor being a pastor here in the Bay Area because it's not like the Bible Belt, you understand? It's, you know, it's kind of tough sometimes. It's frustrating, to be honest with you. But you know what? If not us, who? If not us, who? I mean, look around. There's not an abundance of churches. There's some, but there's not a lot of uh, churches out there teaching God's word, especially in an expository manner, going through the, the, the books of the Bible verse by verse by verse. You just don't find a lot of that going on today here in this area, especially and I think we need to say, wow, God, thank you. Thank you for the people that founded this church, what, 70 years ago? I don't know how long it's been. It's been a while. And that it stood as a beacon of light here on this property, unwavering, unwilling to quit, unwilling to compromise the truth of the word of God. And guess what? You get to be part of that. I mean, that should be encouraging to us. We should be shouting that from the rooftops. And one day he's coming back for us. 
and we'll be out of here. Amen? No, it doesn't matter anymore. We'll be in his presence with a new body, free of sin and pain and tears, suffering, all that. I'm excited, but in the meantime, we've got a lot of work to do. So we need to be praying as a church. We need to be praying that God will draw people here who are hungry for his word. And we need to be bold about inviting people here who need to hear his word. It's, it's so important. You know, we need to be praying for the radio program, 3.30 Sunday afternoons, that as those words go out over the airwaves across the Bay Area, even all over Northern California, really. KFAX is a very powerful station. As those words come out of those speakers and those cars as people are driving, that somehow it would convict them of their sin and draw them to Christ. That's what we desire. That's what we live for each and every day. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the encouragements here of Paul, the challenge, really, that we are called to fulfill. And Lord, these aren't things that we do, but these are things that are results of our faith in Christ knowing that God has provided for us a way of salvation through Christ. Lord, I pray that even as we sing this last hymn, that it would be speaking to our hearts, that, Father, that you would reassure us that our faith is not in vain, our hard work is not in vain, our prayers and, and our witnessing is not in vain, Lord. You will use it for your glory. And one day, when we stand in heaven... One day, we'll, 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 we long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And Father, we long to hear and meet people that are there because maybe we shared a track with them or maybe, maybe we spoke a word of kindness to them or we introduced them to the gospel. Father, we long for that day because this world is just not a whole lot of fun right now. A lot of bad things going on. But, Lord, we shouldn't be surprised. Your word says this is going to happen. They will forget who God is. They will want to suppress the truth. Just read Romans 1. It's a commentary on our world today. And yet, Father, we're still here, so we still have a task to do. And until that last soul is saved that you have called before the foundation of the world, we have to continue to work and to strive and to share the gospel and to be involved in our churches and our families and sharing the word of God with others. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, your word is very clear. If you cry out from a sincere heart, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, Jesus, save me. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe that you died on a cross and you were risen from the dead three days later. That's a step of faith I'm willing to make. I believe that but you need to save me. You pray that prayer to God, he will save you, he will change you. It may not all happen at once, but it will happen. And you continue to live for him each and every day and you be obedient to what he's called you to do and you'll see that salvation come to fruition. And he'll begin to use you in his service and allow you to see wonderful, incredible things that only he can do through you. And so, Father, we pray for our time across the way, too, that you would just bless our food and fellowship and bless our membership class as well as we, we meet later on. And we just uh, thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen, amen.